In the Ring with Eusebius Marquiser. Eusebius Marquiser. Welcome to another edition of In the Ring with Eusebius Marquiser. And in this edition, I'm delighted for us to be talking books again. Although I read a lot of books, I've done a lot of written reviews, but not as many author interviews in the last couple of weeks. So you and I have got some catching up to do because there are so many authors I wish to speak to. And I'm delighted that a good university friend of mine, Matthew Wilhelm Solomon, is our guest in this edition. Uh, Matthew was with me at Rhodes and also at Oxford, and he has written an excellent book, The Blinded City, 10 Years in Inner City, Johannesburg. And if you follow me on social media, you will know that I've been punting it, and I certainly do so now. And many of the reviews have been justifiably glowing about the importance of the book, how well it's written and the necessity for it to have a wide readership. So if you haven't yet heard of it or you haven't had a chance to go and get a copy, go online. It's available at all reputable online sites, but you can also just walk in at any bookstore. And in this country, um, Exclusive Books is a monopoly. Uh, They do have the most outlets across the country. You can find it certainly there. The Blinded City, 10 Years in Inner City, Johannesburg. Matt, congratulations on the book's early success, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation and also for your kind words. Well, I want to start off by saying what the book is about for me as a reader, as an analyst, and as a resident specifically of Johannesburg. I see this book as important because Johannesburg, like the rest of the country, suffers apartheid spatial geography. And although we call it a metropolis, most of us who live in Johannesburg tend to live in certain parts of the city, and most of our lives revolve around it. At most, we travel to work in a different part of the city, but socially and psychopolitically, there are certain parts of the city that resonate with us, that we are familiar with, and the rest we anthropologize, really, um, or see on TV or hear stories about. For example, if you are young and new to the city, and I've only been here about 10, 15 years, like myself, you will often hear people speaking about Yeovil and Hillbrown, what it was like in the 70s and 80s. But your own life might now suddenly revolve around Ilovo or Santon or maybe in Midrand, for example. And this book is important because it forces us to think deeply about the city and then also about a tenuant theme such as the housing crisis and more specifically the immediate trigger for the book was to have a look at so-called hijacked buildings in the CBD around areas like Berea, for example, Durenfontein, Hillbrow, and to really examine what goes on in those buildings. And the stories of the individuals who occupy those buildings is what took center stage in this book. And in the course of this discussion, you will get a sense of why Matthew embarked on that journey over the last 10 plus years to understand parts of the city that many of us middle-class Johannesburgers are no longer familiar with or left behind. And also why this book in 2022 is not only about Johannesburg, but really is a story that resonates globally when it comes to certain fault lines in our global politics. Matthew, I have enjoyed this book. What I thought all of the excellent reviews with only one or two exceptions did not do, which isn't a bad thing, as I said to you in preparation for the conversation, is that they all, as I've just done, re-inscribe the big themes of the book, which we'll spend a lot of time on. But the book is important because you did your homework as a social scientist, 
to really get to know real human beings and to make them come alive. Do two things for me. Give us a basic sense of the overall narrative architecture of the book and introduce to us randomly some of the characters that are so important to the work you were able to present in the book. Thanks, Eusebius. Well, I think first, which was really important to me, is to ground the book in, in storytelling and to have the stories reveal the kind of wider themes and, and complexities. And, you know, I tried not to be too heavy-handed with analysis to allow, you know, readers to inform those interpretations. Um, and those interpretations may differ from mine, but I, I think, you know, the stories were the 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 key things and and when i started the the research in 2010 for an article and, and later um picked it up with postdoctoral research in 2011 um what was immediately apparent to me is that the this label of hijack building was uh m- not quite misleading in the sense that these criminal syndicates did exist but was capturing a whole huge population of people who themselves were not so-called hijackers, were not involved in criminal activity or violent activity, but were essentially just um, working-class uh, South Africans and foreign nationals who, who just couldn't access decent accommodation in the inner city and uh, were looking for a home in the inner city, were looking for proximity to, to work and were subject to extraordinary levels of both uh, state and private sector dispossessions in terms of evictions for migrants, often uh, deportations, but were themselves um, subject to criminal violence and were offered practically no uh, protection from the police who often targeted them. Um, I I started the work with Doctors Without Borders, who who did a survey estimating that there were fifty to sixty thousand residents in the in these um, types of spaces, and and the statistics are vi- widely varying. There's no real reliable st- statistics, which all point to there being tens of thousands of of people living in these conditions in the inner city. Um, so that began the the story of you know of, of of slowly forming connections, making relationships, developing contacts with buildings, and where it started out just with one building that was facing ev- eviction called Chambers, where I made contact with a, a group of blind residents, uh, one whose story, uh, a man named Jethro Gonese, who was in fact a former special needs teacher and was the head of the committee in chambers. And his story is woven through the, the entire narrative. And, and that story was important for me because it, it you know, often, the, as you noted in your essay, there's a tendency just to dehumanize or dehistoricize, you know, people we, we might see at the, um, you know, at the traffic lights and so on. And then his story showed, well, somebody who was trained, had tertiary education, a degree, and ended up living in these conditions basically because support for special needs training was cut in Zimbabwe. And, and you know, and so it, it, it traces his story, but also the kind of complex relationships that the blind Zimbabwean community formed with South Africans in the building um, who who were very suspicious 
um, who themselves were facing eviction. And, and, and so the story explores those types of complexities, which often sometimes break down our ideas of what xenophobia is, because we think of xenophobia simply as an ideology, but often the types of antagonisms emerge through very complex life worlds. And they're, they're also forms of relationships, tender, um, tenderness, intimacy between South Africans and uh, residents from across the borders. And, 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 you know, so the life was much more complex than also just this big narrative of, of xenophobia. Um, another key story throughout the book was uh, there was a very major case in 2011, which kind of sets the scene for the book called... Um, which was known as Blue Moonlight, named after the evicting company. And this was an old carpet factory of 7 Saratoga Avenue, um, which uh, became occupied um, or, or it was initially kind of rented out or, and, and former residents uh, carried on living there. And more people slowly moved into this carpet factory. So it, it wasn't in any sense a criminal hijacking the way that we see it. It was a, a old, essentially abandoned industrial space, which became slowly occupied. And and those residents were, um, the majority were, were South Africans, primarily from KwaZulu-Natal. And, and that be, became um, the basis for, for a very major case, Blue Moonlight, which, which set the precedent that um, the city of Johannesburg was obliged to provide what is called temporary emergency accommodation uh, for uh, if evictions led to homelessness and even if those evictions uh, were by a private developer. This, of course, built on a, a, whole, a num- number of uh, constitutional cases, notably... Hrutko. We'll come back to those constitutional cases, Matthew, because I want to explore what constitutionalism enabled the activists to achieve and civil society cooperation between the occupiers, some left-leaning organizations, including some really good social justice litigators. But I want to stick to the human side of the story. I mean, you mentioned, for example, some of these occupiers were migrants or citizens from neighboring countries with high level of formal education, fleeing horrid conditions to come to Johannesburg. But also some of them were fellow South Africans coming from KZN. Introduce us to some of them. I mean, there are many black women, for example, who came to the city in search of their fortunes. So one of the key um, stories, again, which weaves through is uh, Nomsa Ellen Gladler, who was a a grandmother and taking care of her granddaughter, her own daughter passed away and taking care of her granddaughter was an informal trader, also um, worked as a domestic worker in various white houses and spaces. And so in a sense was a, um, you know, a kind of archetypical story of, of, of a young woman who had come to Soweto in the late 1970s, struggling to just have a home in the city wasn't uh, politically involved, wasn't overtly an activist, but got kind of in, involved in these m- major cases because of just the need to care for a granddaughter. And when 
Although they won that case, Blue Moonlight, the, they went to a shelter called Ikutuleni, and at Ikutuleni, social workers took her granddaughter away. She was the only guardian and family member to her granddaughter. And so there's also these unexpected consequences of what ostensibly was a victory, and, and that led to another major case called Lada, which is about that, and which I outline in depth in the book. But what is important for me is precisely that, not just to tell the grand constitutional court cases, but to tell them through very much the people who lived them and, and these very intimate re- relationships. And, and also, as you said, not to make, I, I don't make this distinction, you know, although but between South Africans and foreign nationals, because many share the same spaces, many share uh, parallel experiences of migrating to the city to, to find a better life and end up um, dealing with, the, the the challenges and the the traumas of the city. Another story is a Zimbabwean woman um, called Caroline Chitupo who who came to the city in essence to find a better life for her son, and her son followed her and got murdered in a completely random criminal event. And and so the book also follows her story in mm-hmm. in both searching for what happened, but also searching for healing. And and that's a key theme is is many of the stories of people searching for for intimacy, for healing within very complex uh, social spaces. Those stories, which my listeners will pick up on by buying a copy of The Blinded City, enable you in a subtle but clear manner to lift to the surface the sociopolitical and other kinds of fault lines of Johannesburg, which is really the story of not just the city, but the entire region, and ultimately slots into the overall story of empire. And I want us to tease out some of those and give our listeners just a taste of what some of those are. For me, the first, and I'm very much acknowledging here that my own preoccupation with legal theory is probably why, intersubjectively as a reader, this for me was a big deal. For someone else, it might not be. I love the distinction that you draw between criminally-minded syndicates who occupy many of these buildings with a view to fleecing the occupiers either by pretending to be the lawful owners or through sheer criminal bullying demanding unlawful rental payments. That category of characters is often in the minds of suburbanites when they support a former mayor like Herman Mashaba being heavy-handed. Your book demonstrates that there's a a distinction that those of us who don't go to those buildings, who don't speak to people on the ground, who don't work in those communities, must pay attention to as a matter of fact. That there's a difference between the individuals you have mentioned from KZN or from Zim and the criminal syndicates. And there's a distinction between legitimacy as a moral and political principle and the idea of being a criminal occupier. Tease out that distinction for us and why it matters. Well, it's it's really central and it's really central to, as I document, to the housing activists in the inner city to separate this idea from unlawful, uh, separate unlawful from criminal. Because one can be in a building unlawfully in the sense that 
Um, you're not paying rent. It's not your property, but you can still have legal protections. In fact, the, the, almost, um, the majority of buildings in the book that I discuss had legal protections against evictions precisely because of eviction law. So although they were there unlawfully, they were still there legally in the sense that they had legal protections that they couldn't be evicted until there was temporary emergency accommodation and so on. So, and, and, so the, you know, there's big distinction between that and, and criminality and, and the criminal law around this is that, well, renting illegally is a criminal act, somebody else's property. Trespassing is a criminal act, although it gets complex because there's a, in South African law, there's a conflict between the, uh, prevention of eviction law and trespassing. And, and many of, as I said, many of the, the people in the book, it wasn't like one act of, you know, taking over someone's property. It was a slow process of moving in and so on. And so there's, there's an, a very important distinction between, you know, criminal groups who go around potentially trying to, you know, use title deed fraud, take over buildings, install their own security, which is the case, but, you know, is far from the case in all the buildings and groups of residents who are basically mobilizing to protect their right to live, to have shelter, to not be rendered homeless. And, and this is a key legal distinction, but it's also a key political distinction because if, you know, as uh, many politicians, uh, in, you know, from different parties have done, labeled all the occupiers hijack as well. Firstly, it, hi- hijacking a building is not a, a legal, um, uh, th- there's no legal category of hijacking a building. It's, you know, it's metaphorical. And secondly, but the, the outcomes of that are types of policies which then indiscriminately target entire populations as being criminals. And, and that's an, another th- theme which is traced through the book. You know, these militarized raids where, you know, families are kicked out of their rooms at night, uh, you know, hassled, uh, and, and that, you know, that police targeting indiscriminately of low income uh, populations, in my view, is very destructive. And that's what has- I wanted you to describe, Matthew, because you take issue with the descriptor hijack buildings precisely because the language of criminality can be weaponized by populist politicians to make sure that sentiment from other parts of the city are against the occupiers with a lack of nuance in terms of distinguishing criminal syndicates from those who are destitute and have slowly moved in out of necessity. And even where they normally break the law, there's surely a wedge that we need to be sort of, you know, drawn between a criminal syndicate and a mom from KZN who is looking for opportunity for her daughter in Johannesburg and ends up in one of these buildings. And that's why phrases like dark buildings or occupied buildings are a bit more morally neutral than hijacking, which immediately frames a certain kind of narrative. You've been in these buildings. Give us a description of what they're like and who's in them and what kind of services are provided, if any. What's it like living in these buildings? Because the other thing that the phrase hijack building does, Matt, is that it makes it seem as if these are fantastic buildings that have been criminally taken over because they must be really cool to occupy for free. But they're not that. So the... the 
term dark building itself is not my term. It's, it's a term that people use, sometimes in a derogatory sense, sometimes just in a descriptive sense, or also in a kind of informal slang, which you know, is kind of informal, which is place of darkness. Part of that comes from the fact that many of these buildings were literally completely dark without electricity and 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 so my first experience for instance in visiting chambers which is in new dunfontein five minutes from my family home was very striking because it was literally just very dark and people navigating the spaces with cell phone light and and also in the space the the blind residents in a sense became my guides to the space because they could never get the space without light. So it's, you know, it's, that's also the kind of play of blindness of what it is to see, what it is to navigate the city, what it is to move into these spaces. But some of them just had, you know, complete state abandonment, no basic waste collection, for instance, like literally some had floor high, um, you know, garbage building up in the the alleyways outside the building, one tap for, uh, you know, sometimes several hundred people. And and the Doctors Without Borders survey at the beginning was started showed that, um, you know, that the conditions actually were worse than international standards for refugee camps. So very extreme levels of degradation, also infrastructural decay, a lack of basic, you know, uh, you know, sometimes fire escapes weren't there or had been recycled. And, and this creates a huge health hazard, which we, we see recurrently in our document in the book of fires. Because if you don't have water, if people are using paraffin stoves, if people are using generators, um, it, it's a massive fire risk. And, and, and there have been fires which have, have killed people. And so, you know, th- throughout, you know, sometimes, not all the buildings are so extreme. Some have some electricity, sometimes illegal connections. Other spaces, in fact, the residents have fought to, to in fact, pay for um, for electricity, which is, in, in fact, very hard to do. But this is just assumption people don't want to pay. But, in fact, sometimes people just want the city to allow them to to pay. Um, you know, and and so that's very extreme, those conditions. Um and, and those conditions continue in some spaces up until, you know, up until today. And, uh, and so you have very extreme levels of dereliction and, and just a sense by the state, well, we're not going to provide basic services. And well, that point about the state not providing basic services, there is a attempt to kick for touch by suggesting that owners in the private sector, property developers that maybe have bought some of the buildings, that they are responsible for the proper use of those buildings. And to the extent that the constitution wants to be pro-poor and be in favor of the occupier's entitlement to dignity, even if they they are unlawfully for that matter, the municipality was really hoping that it could wash its hand of that obligation I want to step back from that before we talk about the big legal victories and the limitations of the victories and just know a basic question that many Joburgers have or those who don't live in the city but pass through it to go to the odd restaurant here or there or to go to Mabonang, uh, which you problematize a lot in the book in a helpful way, by the way, which we won't get into in this conversation. 
Why are these beautiful old buildings that have a glorious history from the middle of the last century? I mean, ugly in some ways, because of course they were exclusionary and part of white capital that then fled to the north, places like Santon. But you look at these buildings and I think to myself, if all of these property developers or the original owners still have title over them, why would they just abandon them? Isn't there at the very least a capitalist logic that would make them want to invest and exploit their their own assets? Well, as I said, sometimes it's 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 not so much abandonment as that they just disappear. No one knows where they are. It's the sense that they're gradually going to decline. So they abandon it in the sense of not maintaining them anymore. Then sometimes what they'll do is then just try auction them off often in auctions in Santon, actually, you know. And so the buildings are just auctioned off with the occupiers in them to bigger property companies who then will just sit with the buildings, often through very protracted legal cases, sometimes 10 years, to event with the eye in the future. So abandonment is, you know, has different levels. You know, sometimes it's just the slow sense of, of decline and, and then it becomes unlawful. And, and you spoke about these old kind of, Buildings and, and the buildings are really important too. You know, in, in some senses in the book, the buildings are, are, are also characters that I follow the trajectory. Like one example is of, of Diamond Exchange, which was, uh, you know, it's, it's like an old art, um, art deco building, um, you know, built in the 50s with Oppenheimer funding that was literally the center of the diamond trade in, in, in Joburg and up until the late 1980s. And that then was sold off to a company who just eventually didn't maintain it, didn't manage it. Um, the residents who were once, in fact, uh, rent payers then stopped paying rent because they said, well, we're not going to pay rent if we're not getting basic services. And And so that type of decline is what, what takes place. And so abandonment is not, what I mean by abandonment is not necessarily people just disappearing, although that's part of the case. It's also just the sense of not maintaining, uh, you know, the infrastructure, the basic services. And, and so buildings lapse into, into unlawful occupation. Um, so yes, they're complex reasons and one can't necessarily generalize because what I try to trace in the book is that each building has quite a specific story to it and it's not always the the same story so again this label of just hijacking as a generic category often misses that these buildings have very complex histories and, and part of what i was doing is uh, in the book is to say well let's not just look at the history of johannesburg as a whole the big uh, stories although i try to weave those in but let's look and say well the story of a carpet factory the story of an old diamond exchange of an old metallurgical workshop of an old furniture warehouse. These these are also the history of the city. And if we trace what happens to these buildings, we also get a sense of the, the shifting dynamics and economies of, of the city, not just in 10 years, but over the last century. Matt, let's talk law. Then we'll talk trauma. And finally, we'll come back to you as the author and your subjectivity. And then I think we've spoiled our listeners enough and they must go and read and we can come back after six months and engage some questions maybe from readers that have emerged over time. I hope for more law, but I know how book processes go. I'm sure you took a decision as an excellent journalist yourself 
before became a becoming a full time academic and also from a book commerce point of view, um, you didn't want to write for lawyers. And so in one sense, the book is a book about constitutionalism, but on the other hand, it is light on presenting the minutiae of legal strategy, legal cases, and it marks those court victories before telling the story around the court victories about the people who then use those court judgments and the limitations of those court judgments. I wanted to know a bit more there, and i tell you why, because South African constitutional law history is interesting. There was a big fight before '96, even amongst political scientists, quite apart from legal scholars, whether or not socioeconomic rights should be legally enforceable against the nascent democratic state. And as we know, in the end, we did more than that. We settled for civil and political rights, socioeconomic rights, and even green rights. So as a normative document, the constitution was really ahead of its time, notwithstanding what the ANC state has done uh, to not respect that normative vision. And so I want to know from you what the two or three most important cases are and what the legal strategies were that were adopted by the lawyers to do what might seem counterintuitive, which is to assert constitutional rights that occupiers have, even if they don't have a lease in place or a rental agreement in place that one normally would have if you were a tenant living in a complex in Santon. And so you really need to be a nifty constitutional litigator to get not only so far as to assert the rights to the provision of basic services, but even to have it be a duty that falls on, on the municipality and not just a property developer. I mean, that's that's astounding. One could have written a book just about the legal strategy. Look, uh, yeah, it was a, um, a deliberate, you know, a stylistic decision. In fact, uh, uh, earlier draft was much heavier on the legal cases and some earlier... I have no doubt, and I think it was the right strategy that you chose. <laughs> It said, no, it was too heavy handed. So I cut back a lot and I tried to keep it grounded in the, the stories. And, and of course, there are better people than me who've written about these cases in depth, you know, legal scholars. I'm not a lawyer. You know, I, I of course, try to understand the law deeply to, in order to write about this. But, but, you know, there's a fair amount of academic work. And so my role here, I thought, was to take some of the, stories around these cases and to take the cases themselves and just bring them into the public domain in a way which is more accessible. Um, but, but yes, if, if one is a, um, a lawyer reading or someone like you who's really interested in, in those debates, um, you know, perhaps there, there are other authors and scholars who've written about them more deeply. Saying this on, on the question of what the major, um, uh, issues are, you know, I've discussed the Blue Moonlight case, which was very major. And, and what that did, which it created a kind of paradox because it said, okay, well, um, and this comes again from Krutboom, which was in the Western Cape in 2000. Well, the state, and in this case, the municipality was obliged to provide temporary emergency accommodation. De facto, what has happened is that temporary emergency accommodation isn't temporary. It's permanent because people don't have any way to the, the same structural conditions um, apply that people uh, many don't have 
uh, can't still access affordable or per- permanent accommodation or rental accommodation. And so they, you know, essentially live in temporary emergency accommodation sites now for for sometimes over a decade or close to a decade. So that's a kind of paradox um, which has emerged from from this legal um, contradiction between both protecting against homelessness and protecting against uh, the rights to property. Uh, I have a more academic paper called The City Otherwise where I, I, I analyze that and the dynamics. So essentially it defers the issue. It says, well, we're not going to provide you permanent housing, but we're going to protect you from homelessness. And and so, you know, people end up in the sort of limbo of temporary emergency accommodation. Another major case then of of, of Glidler, named after Nomsa Ellen Glidler, with the, um, and the judgment was handed down in 2017, was the conditions in these spaces, you know, because the city put families in essentially a homeless shelter and, and and the court said no. Temporary mer- and the city tried to argue, well, these aren't homes. The same rights to dignity, family, all of this doesn't apply. You know, there were lockouts, and and the court said no. Even if it's temporary emergency accommodation, people still have the right to dignity, to family, to intimacy. The same types of rights apply. And so that also puts a major emphasis on the state and and the city in this case. And in a sense, the city, you know, the issue is not going to be resolved by temporary emergency accommodation because it's just not nearly enough. You know, for instance, as I document in in the book, the, the city itself estimates Johannesburg that they are um, yeah. uh, uh, estimate that they are obligated to provide 10,000 households with temporary emergency accommodation, but they only have the capacity is uh, was just under uh, 2,000. So you have 8,000 households. Well, what happens to those people? I mean, that's why there has to be provision of basic services because it's not going to be resolved legally. But also there's the wider question of that there's a major housing crisis that the national government hasn't dealt with, which is really affordable inner city um, uh, accommodation and affordable to informal workers, affordable to people who are working precariously because the, you know, the RDP idea of 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 you know self-contained units on the peripheries has not dealt with inner city housing issues um so so that's what i found interesting matt because i thought as is so often the case in south african constitutional law history there's this bittersweet reality that you can end up with the highest court in the land being very wistful, poetic, and analytically clear, overturning maybe one or two lower courts that were less progressive in recognizing that temporary accommodation does not mean that you're not a family unit. Mom and dad can be separated in different parts of the building. Intimacy doesn't matter if you describe it as a temporary structure. And the concord was very clear if it's de facto a home, let's not pretend not being a homeowner means that you can rob people of their rights. And I just find that so beautiful. And yet the truth of the matter is that if we look at those actual conditions, and here I want to ask you a political question, whether those cases have then managed to really influence the property developers, the politicians, and the officials within the city 
to think deeply about the morality at the heart of those judgments, it seems to be a bittersweet court victory, as is often the case with us in South Africa, where you can declare homophobia unconstitutional, but it doesn't mean that a lesbian woman is safe when she walks back home from the tavern. Similarly, for all of these major battles that we are referring to in law, what difference did it make in fact? Look, I think undoubtedly it's slowed evictions in the inner city, these cases. Uh, slowed evictions that lead to people just being kicked on the street. They still happen, but I think far less than before, you know, and, and I think that in itself is, is, is significant. I think from the city's perspective, and this is um, across parties, there's now a recognition that, that, you know, really affordable accommodation at low levels. We're talking about like rentals of under a thousand rand per month are, are necessary. And in fact, um, you know, there was a plan formulated and a tower called iChip, which was eventually adopted by Mashaba's mayoral council. And so I think there's a recognition that the expansion of affordable accommodation has to take place. That recognition is not necessarily translated into it actually taking place because, you know, that scheme was underfunded. Um, and, you know, and, and, and while I think it was correct that Blue Moonlight put the burden on the city to at least address the issues, I don't think the city <laughs> municipality can deal with it without really a, um, national government actually having a coherent and meaningful plan. And for instance, like the provision of basic services, what, what's so bizarre is that in fact we have, we have those policies for informal settlements in upgrading of informal, in situ upgrading of informal settlements. But, but basically, and there's no legal issue around it. It's just a historical thing. Once an informal settlement is in a multi-storied building in the middle of the city, the the states at various levels just don't consider it a, a informal settlement, and so they haven't channeled um, the, the funding, which is in fact available, into actually improving conditions. They say, and neither do they say, well, this is an emergency space because they. So uh, these spaces fall into like a policy and a legal sort of void, and and what we actually need is is a, also I think a national policy to improve conditions because. So, I mean, I believe in the Constitution. I'm but a, how optimistic you know, are you, though, Matthew? Because I kept thinking about parallels in other Section 27 rights. I mean, take the battles over the years of equal education and their allies within civil society organizations to get my NG to legally agree what the definition of a school is. I mean, you and I know this. Yet, despite Michael Komape drowning in a pit routine in 2015. It's seven years later that hasn't been eliminated, even though there was a court process turned into a legally enforceable agreement about what constitutes a school structure. And housing policy, by the last page of your book, remains a wet dream and a hot mess, even though in the 90s we were told we we're going to have 5 million proper structures, or a million within five years. I don't want to be a party pooper because we can't afford not to weaponize the Constitution as a matter of multiplicity of structures to get the state to do what it should do and also to 
pushback against other sources of power like corporate power that encroaches on the rights of ordinary citizens. You, more than me, know the conditions on the ground. Do you share my skepticism or do you think that one needs to be a bit more sober about the power of constitutionalism, notwithstanding its limitations? Well, I think exactly that. I think that the constitution is uh, progressive, is generally pro-poor with contradictions. I don't think simply litigating will solve the issue. I mean, there needs to be a shift in in policy. There needs to be a political shift in, in consciousness. There needs to also be mobilization of 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 civil society, which is really important to push because you can't litigate every single case. And at different levels, the state will often just ignore the law. And so it's just unfeasible to have to litigate everything. It's not, you know, so there has to be mobilization around civil society to hold the state accountable. And that that links to the deeper question, which I think, um, you know, post-Zondo, we all are feeling, you know, a bit depressed about. It's like, well, you know, in fact, there are enormous state resources available for certain things that are being misused and aren't being allocated to improving basic social services and so on. And so, and hence, you know, there's a real democratic accountability around the allocation of public resources. You know, that's the, the deeper question. And it links also, I think, to what I wanted to come back of the final court case, which is uh, took place, uh, you know, the, the judgment was, was last year, which is about the role of policing. And, uh, you know, where Seri took Mashaba, but also the Minister of Police to, to court, saying these raids were indiscriminate, that they were unconstitutional. And the Constitutional Court, in fact, ruled in favour that, that raids that without a warrant target homes um, under public order regulations were both irrational, without evidence, and uh, were unconstitutional. And, and, and that was a major judgment that I think has huge implications for policing in South Africa, but it was kind of lost amid COVID. It, it received very little coverage and analysis. But this is a major thing of like, okay, well, are we going to continue to invest our public resources in expanding policing, in expanding the deportation system and expanding a very militarized uh, uh, approach towards poverty and migration, which uses enormous amounts of state resources, which, as we saw with Basasa, are often misused in a very corrupt way. Or are we going to say, no, well, the, those public resources, which are scarce, can be better invested in housing, in education, in skills training, in therapeutic services, and and, and so on. And, and so... Yeah, I'm not feeling overwhelmingly hopeful saying that I think that, that the situation is better now than it was. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with ago. you. I, I'm loath to ask a follow up on that because you and I have had such a productive conversation. I can be with you for another hour. Maybe we'll leave it for another occasion, but let me raise it for our listeners. What I wanted to ask Matthew is to expand on something that you as a listener know. I bang on about very often on my podcast, which is the importance of cross-class solidarity. Part of the reason a case like that gets little attention and outrage being expressed is because many of us as middle-class South Africans, black and white, we buy into the populism of the likes of Herman Mashaba. So the guy can turn around 
and not even bat an eyelid after such a case had found behavior under his instruction to have been unconstitutional and can simply malign the judiciary as being essentially, in the language of today, too woke and out of touch with the social concerns that black South Africans have about criminals from other countries living in these buildings and then perpetuate all the lies. And a key question there for me is around building solidarity across constituencies. And I think there we need to come back to that perhaps in a future recording. Second last question, though, Matt, I want to circle back to the experiences of the occupiers. We haven't had time and we won't have time to fully fletch it out, but I want you to sketch for me why else the story of these individuals and the buildings matter. And it has to do with trauma. Many of them suffer and live with various kinds of disability, addiction, the indignity of being unemployed, extreme inequity between their living conditions and parts of the city where many go and beg. And that's quite apart from the violent repression of the red ants, other private security, the police, and the state overall often being a violent state and despite being democratic, having continuities with the pre-1994 regime. At a psychosocial level, what are some of the afflictions that the people that you've been becoming friends with, living with, almost following back to Zimbabwe, tracing their lives, going to their homes? What is it at a cellular level, at an interpersonal level that they carry that the rest of us are just unaware of? I think it's, um, you know, the deeper question, you know, they are population subject to extraordinary amounts of dislocation and violence, criminal violence, violence by police, violence by private property developers, but also, you know, and and uh, also a sort of sense of hopelessness and uh, without the opportunities for decent jobs and so on. And, and one of and I close the book with this. Well, yes, housing is really important. Having shelter is important. But we also need to shift to a, um, you know, a thinking about urban regeneration also through the lens of, of care, you know. And, uh, okay, uh, having a stable space is not just important to stop you getting rained on. It's important because those are the spaces that you build relationships, you build communities. And eviction breaks up networks of support. And, and, you know, so you have very deep levels of, of, of cumulative trauma, I think, in South Africa that go back to the dispossessions of colonialism, intergenerational trauma, the dispossessions of, of apartheid, the, you know, the uh, post-apartheid forms of exclusion. And, and we know from there's a growing medical literature around trauma that, that you know, trauma informs, leads to forms of addiction, that, that, that you know, that... Um, sexual violence, uh, you know, in childhood can also manifest in in recurrent uh, forms of sexual violence if it's not dealt with, you know, and 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 so there's, you know, there's there's a kind of the violence itself can be an outcome of, uh, you know, unresolved trauma and violence from the past, and and so I think it is, this, you know, the mental health issues, for instance, is huge mental health issues in the inner city but with very little support, you know, and, and for supporting people with, 
you know, with mental health issues. And so while it is an infrastructural thing, I, I certainly think we need a, a deeper understanding to have, um, you know, forms of therapeutic support, harm reduction programs for, uh, you know, people suffering with addiction, um, not just excluding thinking, oh, these young guys smoking nyaope are, you know, should be discarded. Well, they are also often people who have had traumatic backgrounds and, Absolutely. you know, living with food insecurity. And we tend just to treat people, you know, and the middle classes of which I'm a part, treat people like dirt, you know, they Absolutely. are discardable. But in fact, rather than saying, well, okay, how do we reduce the harm? And, and so I think that there needs to be a whole shift in, in our approach of, of criminalizing poverty to, to thinking, well, how can we deal with these issues of the past? And that's not easy. It requires, uh, you know, you know, counseling and dealing with trauma also requires justice. It requires a more equal spatial society. You know, if, if you continually have people living in terrible conditions, you're not going to solve that with, you know, just having better counseling services. At the I same time, I, I think that these issues go alongside one another and, and we need to think about these psychosocial issues alongside the, the infrastructural issues. And And I don't see that often there isn't this very holistic perspective, but I also think that a militarizing, criminalizing perspective really goes against the, the you know, the type of philosophy that we need to think about these issues. Beautifully put. When we were graduate students, I made a little bit of money um, editing social science theses amongst others. And so I've become a little bit jaded around a certain template. I wonder whether your students have been imparted the same template that generations of postgrads go through <laughs> that when they write up their final theses or dissertations. The obligatory chapter one that starts with a brief history of South Africa, chapter two with the methods, and in one of those two chapters there's the obligatory confession um, please, pretty please, with a cherry on top, forgive me. I'm a white man who went to the trans guy. Any mistakes I make in my cultural reading is just because of my own ignorance and the weaknesses of my personality and upbringing and being an outsider looking in. Um, and of course, I'm, you know, being somewhat facetious in saying that. I'm a huge fan, as you've picked up on Johnny Steinberg's work. I have a friend who enjoys fighting with me about Johnny's work. And one of the things we often fight about, rehearsing the same arguments on my part and the same arguments on his part year in and year out, is whether Johnny is too self-aware when he goes to Kunu or the Cape Flats and is belaboring his white maleness in the opening pages of his work. How do you navigate that? How do you become not self-indulgent, give yourself permission to observe black people without being overly self-conscious and yet at the same time as a good researcher, being aware of how language, race, class, education does mean that there are ways in which your positioning, quote-unquote, in the field is something that may color your interaction with the subjects, what you observe and what you analyze and the conclusions you reach. And I ask that because throughout the book, you show little bits of humanity. And I often wonder what 
conversations you had with yourself. Should I open my wallet and say, I'm going to buy some money for you on the way to giving you a lift at Park Station before you get on a bus to Zim? Should I make a contribution to the funeral, for example? You know what I mean? I mean, at that point, those are interesting ethical questions to navigate as a researcher. Just reflect for me on that broadly in the final minutes. Well, I, th- I think firstly, as a white writer, one writes from a space of complicity with inequality, with violence. And I just take that as a given. It's not something I can evade. It's how you navigate that. And I thought a lot about this, uh, you know, writing about really um you know, poor working class black communities as a white writer and going into dark spaces has all sorts of colonial resonances, which I was aware from uh, the outset. But, you know, and so there is a risk of objectification of a kind of violence in that. But there's also another risk, which is the violence of, of white blindness, of just turning, you know, turning blind. Eye. Oh, I know these things are going on. I'm not going to say anything because it's not my role. So that is also violent. Okay, it's violent just to ignore the, the levels of black precarity uh, in the inner city and to pretend, oh, everything's fine. We can go and, you know, have a drink in the inner city. And, you know, so, I mean, when, you know, but I don't try to create myself as any sort of, you know, ride from a moral high point. I ride from a complicity with these dynamics in the city. And, and part of the research process was, was forming, you know, deep relationships of trust, of solidarity. And that took years, you know, of understanding. Well, I, you know, getting that people's trust that I could tell, you know, the story in a way which reflects the experience. And as much as possible for the, the deeper narratives in the book, I took the stories back to people before publication to go over it and, and to see, well, is, is this still resonating with your experience? You know, are you happy with the way... I've written this, um, you know, and, and, but I also made a decision. It's not that confessional, but I made a decision while as a middle-class resident, there were parts of the context, which I could, as somebody who's grown up in Johannesburg, also in kind of suburbs around the inner city, there were parts of the city's history I could tell from my own perspective that I couldn't tell from the perspective of those I interviewed, you know, the shifts in Yeovil, also going to Santon, you know, the, the music environment, you know, these types of things. And so there was a narrative decision too. Okay, well, I have to, you know, through my own story, I can shed light on the wider context. Um, and, and so that was quite a conscious decision. You know, is this actually contributing to the narrative? Is it showing some degree of reflexiveness about the complexities, the moral complexities of, um, you know, as as a white writer, but not allowing my story to overwhelm the stories in the book? Because it's, but also, it, but how it is also is story it to allow your humanity to just come through. There's a parallel set of ethical quandaries in journalism that we teach. And I often think that the teaching is double-edged because on the one hand, you are empowering people with explicit analytical tools through which to think ethically. And that's always a good thing in our professions, in academia and in journalism. On the other hand, you can also overthink your own humanity. I mean, I once on location did a piece of journalism when I was still a broadcaster on 702 in Eldorado Park and there was a woman in tears describing to me the homelessness and the indignity of having been on the waiting list and showing me where she was living in an empty little box outside on the street that's an old electricity 
provision structure. And I allowed her to cry on my shoulder. You know, and I don't think I need a pat on the back for that, but I wasn't about to go and plug into some normative ethical theory, the facts of the situation and puzzle through it before deciding whether to give this woman a basic hug as a human being. And when you go to the Hillbrow station as a white middle-class person, you know that you have better odds of finding out information about a case involving one of the people that you have befriended than if she went there to go and ask those questions. Did you allow yourself to just do that kind of thing without overthinking ethical questions sometimes? Well, I thought about it ethically, and I, I could never get into a stage, and I wouldn't. It would be unethical to, to pay for interviews, for instance. I tried to express it as much as possible through solidarity. So if people needed information, um, you know, try to, to find that out for people. You know, if, again, kind of, you know, and this links to the book more widely to, you know, if there's a single message of the book um, that, okay, well, it's actually, I mean, it's a bit ironic given that I've written the whole book, but that, that in fact, it shouldn't be me mediating the debates in the inner city. If there's a single message, it's like, well, you have inner city residents who need to be engaged directly in shaping the future of the city. And as much as I can have ideas, you know, it's going to fall down unless you have that deep participation saying that on a personal level you know i um these are long-term relationships i've known some people for 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 10 years and they they're relationships that have continued beyond the finishing of the book i mean i'm still actually in touch with most of the key people through um whatsapp through these things and so um you know if there's uh times of of crisis as when you know, does with friends, there are spaces to help out, not necessarily financially, but maybe, you know, like a kid doesn't have access to internet and I have access to, to internet, you know, and I can do research for people around educational courses. You know, there, there, there are other ways to express reciprocity, express solidarity. And, and ultimately, I don't think you, you know, one enters into these types of complex relationships and, and you can't just, um, evacuate yourself from them. I don't think it would be also ethical to do that. So, you know, one has these kind of human relationships at the end of the day with people who, you know, have become friends. Yeah. The Blinded City, 10 years in inner city Johannesburg, correctly described by Naren Tolsi, one of our best writers, as one of the best works of narrative nonfiction to emerge from the country in years. Quite simply brilliant. Now, shout-out quotes can often be overly generous. They come from colleagues and friends or mentors or mentees. But having read this book, I can honestly say that it is exactly that. It's beautifully written, stylistically. It's an important book, and I hope that all of you will go and buy a copy and work through it and then perhaps come back to this podcast episode and see how your impressions of the book stack up against this conversation that you've just listened to. Matthew, thanks for coming on and all the best and may you sell many more copies. Thanks for for such a generous reading and for such an engaging discussion. I really appreciate your time, Eusebius. Cheers.